I think there's something, uh, I think there's something important about the human condition and the Christian life that many of us struggle against um, that we need to understand. Uh, this is a big deal, and I think uh, that many of us t- try to sort of sweep this under the rug and pretend that this isn't true <laughs> about not just the human condition, but especially the Christian life. So we need to name this truth, not ignore it. The truth is simply this. The work of building the kingdom of God doesn't stop till Jesus returns. Let that sit and simmer for just a sec. The work of building the kingdom of God doesn't stop till Jesus returns. While on the one hand, sort of like Hebrews 4 and a few other, few other places tell us, on the one hand, we're to enjoy the rest from spiritual striving because Jesus has achieved salvation for us. He's justified us once for all before God the Father. So the work of our salvation is done. It's complete. But on the other hand, the work of building God's kingdom will not stop, doesn't stop the people of God carrying out his work until Jesus returns to stop it. I think this is really important for us to simmer on and understand and come to grips with. We like to think, we'd hope, we sort of have this inner like desire of please not more, I'm busy enough, I'm overwhelmed enough, duh, I get it. But we have this thing inside us that keeps us from moving forward in this idea that indeed God has positioned, called, and equipped the people of God alone on the planet to carry on his work and it's our call to carry it on until Jesus returns. We would, you know, kind of hope it's different than that, that give the responsibility of please call somebody else Jesus. We'd like to think it's different than that, that sort of like once we reach a certain point in life, a certain level, a particular level of financial freedom or material security, or we've got the degree we always wanted, the job we always wanted, the boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse we always wanted, enough Pokemon cards, that kind of stuff. Whatever it is that you're going for, you sort of have this thing in the here and now where you think, when I get to this, I'm going to ease up and rest. It's my turn to settle in and hunker down. This is true at a whole bunch of places in our lives, friends. Parenting, for example. We have this ridiculous idea. I used to think when my kids were in (laughs) diapers, just as long as I can get through diapers, Man, that seems like a long time ago and so much easier than it is now. Right? Like parents think, if I could just get them to this place of obedience and behavior so I don't have to be as vigilant as I've had to be up to this point, man, it would be so easy after that and I could just settle in and hunker down. The list goes on and on and on. (laughs) We think that there's this There's this place in the here and now before heaven, before Jesus returns, this certain level of of sort of ease and comfort and security that we're supposed to get to. Then we'll just rest and chill and disengage and settle in. But that's just not in Scripture. There is no supposed place of packing it in like we think there is. Of course, there's Sabbath rest. We should all pursue regular Sabbath rest in our lives, but we should all pursue it ironically so that we're ready for work in the here and now to build the kingdom until Jesus returns. There's no this theology of this world 
settling in, hunkering down, retirement, and disengagement from the kingdom thing in the Bible. It's just not there. This is worth saying out loud for lots of reasons, but I think especially for us in our context here, uh, because straight up, we live in the land of everybody loves Jesus, Green County, right? Where, where conservative Christians come to disengage and die. But listen, God didn't create you to hunker down and settle in. He created you to produce. I mean, it's right in the first two chapters of the Bible. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God made you, equipped you from the very beginning in his image to be fruitful and multiply, to do what he did, to produce and to carry on the work that he started of stewarding his creation for those who come after us. So I hate to break it to you like this, but it's just reality. At least here in this church, frankly, <laughs> it will be over my dead body that this church loses sight of our calling to be about building the kingdom of God to produce his goodness and glory and therefore our joy. I get it. I'm tempted to pack it in, to settle in, to hunker down. Believe me, I can't manage my email. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> I'm suffering through my email and messages and texts and messenger. I get it. It's so tempting in this world of overwhelm, information overload. Everybody has access. There is no stop to, to understanding the brokenness of the world because we have it coming at us constantly. It's super tempting today to just settle in, hunker down, and say, I I'm over it. I get it. But we've got to understand, we've got to understand that we are in the people-building business in the kingdom of God. It's the first two words of our mission, helping people find and follow Jesus. So we must not become uh, content to just sort of settle in, hunker down for self. The overwhelm of the world is a constant temptation to settle in, hunger down for self. So we're going we're gonna to continue to be here Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, to fan the flame of this sort of holy discontent, hoping that it ignites in you a godly disgust for the pathetic life of settling in and hunkering down for the sake of you and me alone. For the follower of Jesus who sacrificed himself on a cross in which he died so that we could know him, this idea of perverting the world's resources into a system of pleasing ourselves should just disgust us. Friends, the work's not done. There's a lot more to do. Today there are going to be 125 kids, fifth grade and under, many of whom desperately need mature believers to be their small group leaders because we don't have enough. We just don't have enough. And all the kids and people said, like three of y'all, <laughs> who are going to be in second service, you're tracking. 
We need small group leaders for our middle school and high schoolers. We need people in all sorts of positions all over this place. You can find out about it in the server wall on the hub. There are hundreds of adults who call our church home who are not yet serving, who are not yet uh, in a life group and have a sense of place. In fact, all around us, week after week, there are 50,000 Green Countyans who are not meaningfully connected to a local church body. There is much work to be done. And God has called us in his word, just like the generations of followers who came before us, to rise and be built into a people who produces goodness and glory. That's why you exist. It's just straight up why he made us. Our joy is found in giving ourselves to his plan for the world. It's not in, it's not in finding your plan for the world. It's just not. It's in finding God's plan for the world. <laughs> so, there's a ton of work to be done. There's just a ton of work to be done. And we are called to it. But, <laughs> but, to do all of that before we jump in, before we jump into the people business, uh, the people building business in a way that's unwise, we have to step back, we have to take our breath, we have to think, we have to have our hearts ready for the work so that it is done God's way. There are lots of places in scripture that, that make this clear where instead of jumping in, we can see all the places where the people of God have jumped in unawares, not hearts ready, um, but this is one of the places where, where the, the people get it right because finally it had not been working and Nehemiah says, listen, let's step back, let's talk to God first. In the book of Nehemiah, as the, uh, as the exiled Jews were sort of returning to Jerusalem, they found the walls of their home city uh, broken, unfinished. Uh, there was much practical work to be done with hammers and tools and that kind of stuff. And it was a time of excitement as they were coming back um, to rebuild uh, the walls. But as Nehemiah models for us here, the work should start with prayer. God's work always starts with prayer. Let's jump in. Nehemiah, the first chapter, starting in at verse 1. This is where Nehemiah introduces himself, and he sort of sets the story for us uh, geographically and historically. He says this, jump in at verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, whose name means the Lord comforts, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, which was late November, early December, about the same time as now. In the 20th year, that's a reference to the reign of King Artaxerxes, the first there, a Persian king. Um, the, the, they were the ones who were in charge of the Jews at the time. It was the 20th year, and then he says this, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now press pause here. Let's set the scene. Susa is located uh, in the west of modern Iran, about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf. And this was, Susa was the winter getaway for the Persian kings. Nehemiah was there in Susa with King Artaxerxes because as he tells us in verse 11, he is the cupbearer to the king. Meaning that wherever the king goes, Nehemiah also goes in order to drink from the king's cup before the king gets it, usually, uh, to make sure that it's not poisoned. That was basically his entire job description, which means he's one of the king's most trusted officials. He's a part of the king's court. He's a guardian, a personal guardian for the king, a very 
trusted high-ranking official in the court. So Nehemiah had made it to the top of his profession as um, cupbearer, which means um, he was a very trusted and extremely well-paid drinker of um, mostly adult libations, frankly. So he didn't have a tough job, except it was an important job, okay? So soon after the Jews are allowed to return to Jerusalem, Nehemiah goes with the king in order to, you know, make sure the king lives and isn't uh, poisoned. Nehemiah goes along, sipping on gin and juice, with the king in Susa. Pick it up in verse 2. He says this. It happened that Hanani, uh, Hanani, we're not sure exactly how that's pronounced, but Hanani, Hanani, one of my brothers, probably a literal blood brother, not sure, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. That's the important part there. It's probably a delegation that was sent to Nehemiah because he's an important guy. Maybe he could influence the king. Maybe they could end up helping us back in Jerusalem. That seemed to be the hope there in verse 2. And they said to me, the delegation from uh, Judah concerning Jerusalem, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. In other words, things are not good. They're experiencing setbacks in their rebuilding of the walls to the point that the effort had stopped entirely. And, and, and lest you think, by the way, that this seems like a small thing, like, oh no, they didn't have their walls built. In the ancient world, not having walls around a city was pretty much like an invitation for people to come and lay siege to your city and to take over everything, okay? It was job one to have the walls built. And in this circumstance, where they're under foreign military and religious powers, they were in exile and they were under the Persians, it was job one for them to have the walls built, not just for protection militarily, but it's also sort of a sign uh, of weakness. It's like saying, come destroy us militarily, but compared to all their neighbors, the Jews not having walls, is sort of like this open invitation for the Persians and the foreigners to mock this supposedly almighty God, right? Like, you're supposedly almighty God, can't even get you together to build the walls. That's how messed up you are. So this, this sense of shame was also a part of what they were experiencing then. So when they report here to Nehemiah that they're in great trouble and shame, it's not hyperbole. It's evident here in the seriousness of Nehemiah's response. This is our main focus today here, this prayer starting at verse four. Says this, as soon as I heard these words, meaning the delegation reporting about the situation in Jerusalem, it says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, he said, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is so grieved and uh, torn apart here at the state of things back in the homeland that he mourned and fasted and prays uh, for days. And notice that it says he does so before the God of heaven. Meaning the first thing he does in this crisis is he gets his mind and his heart straight by going to the God who is in ultimate control. And as Nehemiah models here, his prayer is not the last resort, right? We get into this place of crisis and we're like, oh, I guess I'll pray now. <laughs> it's before he even gets there. Uh, many scholars think for as many as 150 plus days of mourning and weeping and fasting and prayer, 
It's the first step of action for him. It's the first step of Nehemiah's work. The rest of the series, we're going to talk about more practical ways that the people came together, they built the team, they, they drew up plans, uh, they looked at the work they were going to do, and they carried it out. But today, we focus on the first step of action as prayer. Keep reading there. Verse 5. Nehemiah saying, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He rooting, he's rooting his prayer here in God's character as the, as the God who keeps his promises. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Uh, this word servant here, if you're following along, if you're note-taking, you're going to circle that. It shows up eight times in this passage. It's a key feature of this prayer, which is to say it's a key feature of why we say the first step of action is prayer. To realize who God is and, and what he's asked us to do as servants. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you uh, day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. He includes himself as he should. All of the people were guilty. And even though, notice the presenting problem is this broken and unfinished wall. He says, this is the real problem, verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Meaning that Nehemiah recognizes here that the wall problem not being built is ultimately a heart problem. It's not a resources problem, really. How often do we approach the things in our lives and think, oh, if I only had enough resources for, if I only had enough time for, if I only had enough money for, if I only had, if I only had, everything is if I only had, <laughs> we skip where we are before God in the first place. Nehemiah recognizes the real problem here. The wall-building problem is not a resources problem, it's a heart problem. The person, the marriage, the family, the church that accomplishes the will of God in ways that are powerful do so because their hearts are right with God. People whose hearts are right with God are people through whom God loves to work to accomplish the advance of his kingdom. So he says, we've acted corruptly against you. We've not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules you've commanded your servant Moses. He's remembering the promise to Moses here. He says this, verse eight, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. And then he mixes a few passages in the Old Testament saying, if you are unfaithful, this is God's promise to Moses here. He's recalling this during his prayer. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, which obviously had happened. But if you return to me, if you come back and repent, if you turn your hearts toward me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And then he closes by simply asking for power and mercy. He says, they are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
And then he closes by saying, oh, by the way, I was cupbearer to the king. So I want to spend a little bit of time reflecting on what this means uh, for us today. I'm going to do so in a way that's a little bit weird. If you're new to us, we have a word we use to describe uh, how, we, how we get ready to do God's work. It's a little weird for a word like this, for a church to own up to a word like this and make it such a, a, an important part of the vocabulary, but welcome to First Christian Church. Um, we are talking about this idea of being prepared. Today's message is brought to you by uh, the word prepare. P-R-A-Y-P-A-R-E. Sort of like Sesame Street. So today we're going to incorporate this slightly dorky FCC word that we made up. It's found in team code maxim number two. Uh, those of you who have been through next steps are already familiar with this term and with the team code. Uh, by the way, if you've not yet been to next steps, uh, you're missing out on language like this that helps us understand what God's called us to corporately. By the way, number two, just parenthetically, we used to say pre-prayer, but that was too hard to say, so now we say pray, pair, P-R-A-Y-P-A-R-E. Um, it's a little easier to say. Uh, it's best if you pronounce it with a little bit of a French, like pre-pair, like that. There you go. Um, so I know it's a little unorthodox to so fully incorporate a word into a church's official vocabulary, but that's kind of how we roll. Um, so super silly and super serious. Not supercilious. Anyway, so let's give some further definition to this word. Pray pair comes from team code maxim number two. And we say we pray pair, all of our team code maxims, there are seven of them, all of them uh, start with the word we. We pray pair as if the word does the work, souls are at stake, excellence matters, and feedback helps. Uh, team code is seven maxims long. It sort of guides how we think about how we serve on the team. And what we mean by this word pray pair is that we pray and we prepare. Pray hearts, minds, spirits, readiness before God. Nehemiah 1 right here today. And we prepare with our hands in practical ways. With an understanding that the work that we're doing corporately when we serve on the team, singular, all of us, same team, that the work that we do takes into account the idea that God's word is what ultimately does this work and drives everything. The idea that people's souls are at stake in what we do, that excellence is how we want to carry this out so people look at it and they go, man, these people are serious as if God's glory matters. And then finally, that our structure with, with, with how we do the teams requires lots of feedback. Now, don't worry about the last four things. Let's, let's focus on this word prepare for just a bit here. The concept behind this word, as we've seen in Nehemiah, the first chapter, is the real beginning of the work of God to build his people and his kingdom. Instead of always immediately jumping into what we commonly call the work, Nehemiah prays first. Recognizing that a heart that is right with God is what results in work that is done by God. A heart that is right with God is what results 
in hands and practical work that we can call the work of God. You see, friends, prayer is how we first submit ourselves to God, as he says eight times in this passage, as his servants. Prayer is how we submit ourselves to God as his servants. This is how we get our hearts in the right place so that ultimately our work together will be his work. Friends, we want to be a church that recognizes that this work of uh, preparing to care for the souls of those that God sends us is what ensures that we are building on a sure foundation. Get a whole bunch of people together to do work (laughs) and it's liable to go as many directions as there are people, right? Have you led anything in your life that involves people? We need to be prepared (laughs) because we recognize that it is God who is building our walls person by person. And as we connect people to us and ultimately to Christ, we are fulfilling our mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. And that's a mission that only happens correctly when the Spirit of God is the builder of this thing which means that each one of us has to be prepared prepared in our hearts through prayer. Prayer is just plain how we first submit ourselves. We say, God, you made me. This is your work. I'm in it to win it for you, not for myself. Advance your kingdom in the here and now because I have submitted myself to your vision for my life first and foremost. It's how we submit ourselves to God as his servants. It's how we get our hearts in the right place so that our work will indeed not be ours, but his. The evidence is there when it bears fruit with people coming to know Jesus. If you want to know if your work is God's work, is it fruitfully multiplying for the sake of people connecting to Jesus? Ask yourself questions like, Does my life result in people finding and following Jesus? Or does my life's work to the resources that I have, am I stewarding them in ways that really are about the here and now for my safety and security in in, in material ways right now? Use that as a diagnostic. And, And pray in these ways that the here and now is your vision for your life. Pray that that will be submitted to the goodness and glory of God because that's where your joy is found, friends. That's why he made it this way. Now, before we close, I want to uh, to just remind you of a few features of Nehemiah's situation here uh, and his his prayer. Uh, Just three that will help lead us into sort of a corporate challenge for the week. I want you to notice three things. Number one, Nehemiah is prompted to pray because of what he sees in the community. Secondly, he is humbly focused on being a servant for God's purposes. And then number three, as the cupbearer, he's well positioned to do something about the situation. Nehemiah is prompted here in chapter one to pray for his community. He's focused on serving God's purposes and thirdly, he is well positioned to do something about the situation. And I want you to uh, want to ask you to join me in praying 
this one question this week that incorporates these three features of Nehemiah's prayer. Here's the question. Am I, I know it's dorky, roll with it please, am I prepared to serve my community as I am positioned? You don't have to be second or third to the king, but you're positioned with someone, somewhere, to do something for the sake of the advance of God's kingdom. So just ask yourself that question this week. Pray this prayer this week. Talk to the Lord. Am I prepared to serve my community as I am positioned? Friends, (laughs) if the church does not rise up and let God build us into his people, our community suffers, our work will be in vain, people won't come to know Christ, and our own children will wonder why we worship a God who doesn't seem to move in power in the lives of those around us. God has uniquely called and gifted this church at this time to do his work of building the kingdom. No one else on the planet has this mission. The people of God are called and equipped to be ready for it. And it starts with asking, am I prepared to serve my community as I am positioned? Let's pray, friends. Father, forgive us for rebelling against the truth that you have given us everything we need so that we continue to uh, manipulate the world around us for the sake of building up our own kingdoms. Lord, we love the amazing truth that you have given us in Jesus. Sufficient power over the evil one that you have given us and provided for us the perfect sinless life of Jesus that was sacrificed for us so that as we accepted what he did for us on the cross, Lord, his once for all sacrifice on the cross that we could have a forever relationship with you. We love you for that amazing truth, Lord. Shape us according to it, we pray. Amen.